Hello, welcome to episode 54 of Herpetological Highlights, the podcast all about herpetological science, reptiles and amphibians. I'm Tom Major and co-hosting with me as per usual is Ben Marshall. And uh, in our 54th episode, in our 54th episode, we're going to be talking about snake venom. Yeah, it is actually specifically snake venom and not all types of venom. I was... Yeah... I've, I failed to realise. I don't have any intentions. Oh, okay, no, I will mention some other venom. But, um, you know, the body of the episode is about snake venoms, specifically their potency and yield of venom and um, what are the causes of those variations in snake venom. And then we're also looking at a paper about uh, venom immunity of a predator to its prey's venom. And then, of course, we've got we don't want to spoil it, but I think it's fair to assume there's some kind of venomous critter coming at the end for our species of bye week. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a badger. A venomous badger. Yeah, what are those venomous that. badger things called? Um, oh, they're nothing, they're nothing to do with badgers, but aren't they like venomous shrew-like beasts? Uh, what are they called? Um, something Adon. Selenodon. Selenodon. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, gosh, horrendous. The stuff of nightmares. Um, <laughs> hairy and venomous. Hairy, venomous. No. And their tails don't have any fur. Disgusting. Vile. Simply vile. <laughs> um, well, should we, uh, should we start with the first paper and just get, get going? Yeah, let's do it. So, number one is published in Ecology Letters by Healy, Carbone and Jackson. Snake venom potency and yield are associated with prey evolution, predator metabolism, and habitat structure. Published in 2018. This paper, as you've said, is um, looking at the reasons driving venom potency. So how strong is the venom and how much of the venom comes out when the snakes poke their fangs into their prey. Venom is a cocktail of proteins, which is created in the venom glands of snakes, and uh, they deliver it via their fangs as I said, into the bodies of their prey, or in some cases their predators, or what they perceive to be predators, so humans occasionally. Or each other. Yeah. Or themselves. Or Or themselves. Yeah. I mean, not deliberately, obviously, but but it does happen. Yeah, of course. Um, Every now and again, someone with a weapon styles themselves with it. Snakes are no exception. They tend to accidentally bite themselves on occasion. But um, yeah, venoms vary wildly between different species. This shouldn't really be a surprise because... Venomous snakes exist in a wide variety of places and have tons and tons of different life histories. But the evolutionary and ecological drivers behind this variation is still a bit of a mystery. And it's something which many, many um, herpetologists are focusing their work on. And uh, this paper, they set out to kind of try and demystify some of the uh, causative factors for this variation in both venom yield and potency by looking at um, the interactions between the snakes themselves and their prey, whether or not the prey are kind of um, immune or whether they're uh, particularly susceptible to the venom. And then they also looked at how venom yield changes as snakes get bigger and what the reasons for that might be. And I think because this paper has got kind of two broad sections, I think we should cover the prey stuff first and then the body size stuff after how do you feel about that um or do you want to melt melt them all together i 
I think no, I think I think splitting it's not a not a bad shout. I think possibly doing the body stuff first might be the better idea. Okay. Because the potency and the prey interactions leads nicely into the second paper. Whereas the body stuff is almost um it's sort of nicely separate. Yeah, okay. Okay. It's almost compartmentalized. Yeah. I did want to say before we sort of dive into anything, is that one of the one of the tricks with this whole venom potency is how on earth do you measure venom potency? Um, because a lot of these studies are done on stuff that is uh, like used as an analogy to people. Because it's looking at snake venom and its impacts on people. You're not going to inject a person with venom, so you're going to be working with mice and rats and sort of standardized lab animals in that regard. So one of their first things they bring up with dealing with uh, potency is... Well, just because a venom's potent for a mouse doesn't mean it's potent for what the snake's actually eating, or vice versa. So that's, I think, one of the the key aspects to this paper to remember is when we're talking about venom potency, it has to be context-specific. Yeah? Yeah, it does, yeah. And in in the one major context, which a lot of the literature focus on, focuses on, that context is, as you've said... Um, the effects of bites, defensive bites on humans. But right. we're delving a lot deeper, as you say, in this paper, because the authors of this one aren't necessarily interested in the medical outcomes of snake bite. They're looking at snake bite in its evolutionary context. So why do these snakes have this amount of venom? Why does it have this effect on these animals? And it's ecologically relevant. And it has a trophic reason behind it. You know, snakes are setting out to eat more of some animals than others and therefore it makes sense that their venom you know is likely to have to have an effect on different animals in different ways and that as you say is what they're kind of looking at in this but i think should we should we describe what ld50 values are before we start because i think that's probably going to come up quite a bit i Most think that would be great if you could describe to me what an ld50 value is <laughs> <laughs> okay an ld50 uh, i don't actually know uh, lethal dose it stands for lethal dose 50 the amount of venom that would need to be injected into X animal to kill 50% of them. Usually it's done with a mouse. So yeah. say you've got some, I don't know, king cobra venom. There, Say you insert, I mean, these, these numbers are just ridiculous. I'm, I'm not sure how much venom you'd have to put in a mouse. But say you put 0.3 uh, milligrams of dried venom into a, a 50 gram mouse and or 10 50 gram mice, if five of them died... The LD50 for King Cobra Venom would be 0.3 dry milligrams for a mouse. Yes. So a lower LD50 equates to a more potent venom. Yeah, exactly. Lower the better. Yeah. Well, it depends. Lower the better. Lower the cooler. But um, yeah, yeah it lower depends LD50. if you're snake or bitey. Yeah, so if you need, like, if your LD50 is a kilogram, it's not going to be killing anything because there's no way that you can get a kilogram of venom into an animal. But Unless then... you got bitten by like two hundred snakes simultaneously. <laughs> Unless you but were that, that would guy. be a, f- a freak, freak accident. <laughs> Imagine if you you know that guy who like sits in the bath with the snakes for the world record. I think it's a um, world record. I'm not sure why yeah, he did it. Are they venomous snakes? I'm not sure, I can't recall, but imagine if it all went suddenly wrong and something happened, maybe, I don't know. Oh, was... like some sort of snake pheromone got yeah. released and all the snakes on a certain plane went crazy and attacked everybody. <laughs> Is that yeah. the plot for snakes on a plane? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I couldn't enjoy that film because all the snakes that they were freaking out about were so clearly harmless. 
I don't know, I wouldn't want to get bitten on the face by a Malagasy hognose. Yeah, but... Oh, yeah, okay. But I don't I, know I, if yeah. a Malagasy hognose on a plane is justification for the hysteria that ensued in that film. Uh, yeah, agreed. I'm not going to I'm not going to defend snakes on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember everyone's freaking out. There's just like a, a harmless little milk snake just crawling around the floor like, "Why is everyone going crazy?" <laughs> yeah, but you've seen people at picnics, a wasp flies by them and they all freak out. It's, yeah, that's, that's true. I suppose that's a wasp true. could kill you if you were allergic to it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we got the LD50 values, more potent, lower LD50 values. We're going to do the body stuff first, yeah? Yes, let's do the body stuff first. Okay. Let's just, let's just get that out of the way. Yeah. So, um, they wanted to understand venom yield and how it changes, um, along a gradient of snake body size. So they had a few theories as to what would happen. So you're looking at snakes as they get bigger will their venom yields increase? And if they are increasing, are they increasing in a logical way, in a way that can be explained by one of the hypotheses that they put forward at the beginning of the paper? So they've got this uh, weapons hypothesis, which is that venom yield increases more than body size. So basically snakes are just, as they get bigger, producing loads and loads of venom out of sync with how much bigger they're getting. And this would suggest that venom had like some kind of defensive role, you know, a bigger snake can afford to spend more money, well, not money, more resource on uh, getting more venom, more money. <laughs> the <laughs> snake's training. <laughs> snake's like, wait, yeah, I've got my coins, guys, with venom. No, like, the idea behind the weapons hypothesis, it doesn't really fit with this idea. I don't think it really ha- has anything much related to do with um, snake venom yield. They kind of just put it in there. And um, weapons I hypothesis... I think they had to cover all the options. Yeah, they did. did. Have, basically, if you did get results there should be some way of explaining it. And this is what would be suggested if they had gotten those results. Yeah, that's true. But like weapons hypothesis better explains things like horns on a lizard, where as the horns get bigger, it has a role in things like sexual selection or um, actual like defense against predators where this venom is unlikely to have that. Anyway, moving on, that's the weapons hypothesis. The second is the proportional hypothesis, which is that venom yield scales perfectly with snake size. So a snake that's twice as big has twice as much venom. And then there's the metabolic rate hypothesis. Um, Energy available is lower for venom production in bigger snakes because of their metabolism being more costly to run. So the idea Mm. is that bigger snakes, as they grow, um, there's venom isn't free to produce. And to produce the same quantities relative to a smaller snake, they have to put in slightly more energy just because being bigger is a little bit less efficient. Um, Is that right? Have I got that right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I think I think so. I think yeah. so because if it was the other way round, where it was, they got bigger, so it was more efficient. It would be yeah. over. It, it would be closer to the, like the weapons hypothesis, where they could produce more venom per mass, but it's not. It's it's there's diminishing returns for getting larger. Yes, and then the final hypothesis they were testing is the predator prey hypothesis. Okay, so the predator prey hypothesis is that um, the yield doesn't increase. Um, as much as the snakes get bigger as you would expect and that's maybe because the venom by its nature is already quite potent uh, there's loads of toxins in there and it's they don't need twice as much to kill something twice as big it's already pretty toxic in its nature so yeah it doesn't directly it doesn't it doesn't scale up one to one yeah it's, it's um it, it starts suggesting that what the venom is is more important than the quantity being delivered. 
Yeah, so you can kind of understand. You, you would expect, because prey items are getting proportionately bigger with snake size. Yeah, I think so the best you, way to explain it yeah. is like, if you had something which was toxic enough to kill a child, then you give the same toxic thing to an adult because it's toxic. The adult's not going to have to consume a whole lot more to die or to get like the same complications as a child because our bodies work in the same ways and there's gonna, that toxin is going to have an effect. Yeah, and it feeds feeds nicely into the, the actual potency aspect, which we'll get into in a second. Hmm. Do you think that was a like good the, description? Um, your child adult analogy. Yeah. Uh, I think it could have been better. Yeah, I feel like you're gonna. I'm gonna just jump in and ask for a rating of that analogy before <laughs> before you give me a slayed one. I think it was pretty bad. Well, what would be what would be a better equivalent? I can't think of anything. Um, I mean, the thing is, because it it's already been described in quite sort of... It basically, it's so potent that it doesn't matter how big you are, it's still going to kill you. Um, that's the best. It's like cyanide. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You could be it. the biggest biggest person in the world. You eat cyanide, you're still going to die, just like if you gave cyanide to a mouse. There's the analogy we need. It, it, it's overkill. That's a great analogy. Um <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, I mean, sh- should we talk about should we talk about what they did find out with regard to that? Yeah, yeah. Let's just wrap up wrap up the body stuff because I think the potency is actually more interesting in terms of what it says about predator prey relationships. So results wise, uh, they found it was sort of in between two hypotheses. Really, there was it was closest associated with the metabolic rate hypothesis, but. The uncertainty associated with it sort of suggests maybe it can be predator-prey hypothesis as well. So what we're really looking at is, as snakes are getting bigger, the amount of venom they're producing to body weight isn't increasing one-to-one. So bigger snake, slightly less venom in relation to body compared to a smaller snake. What's this suggesting? It's suggesting that their venom's pretty well designed for prey-specific purposes. So they don't need more venom as they're eating larger prey items, because it's already potent enough to deal with that. Or at least it's suggesting it's potent enough. We'll have a look if it actually is in a second. Um, What else with venom? Oh, they did do a a little investigation between snakes that are occupying three-dimensional environments and two-dimensional environments. This was cool. Arboreal versus uh, terrestrial. Yeah. Um, And it sort of it sort of showed the opposite of what you might expect because there's a there's a good train of thought there that if you're in a three-dimensional environment, you'd need a higher venom yield to incapacitate your prey quickly get the job done because you're in a complicated environment yeah when you're a, you don't want when, things getting away when you're a snake in a tree and you bite a lizard yeah it's gonna yeah. either okay no, let's start with on the ground if you're a snake on the ground and you bite a lizard the lizard can run around on the floor to get away from you right okay it might go in a hole don't be so pedantic but <laughs> what if it climbs snake, onto a bush it, don't talk to me about bushes this snake swims Look, this is a terrestrial environment. It's a desert. There's only a few rocks. They can't go anywhere. It's, it's a large, open, concrete yeah. car park. <laughs> Perfect habitat. <laughs> um, I love the bask. Trimerosaurus carparkii. <laughs> uh, 
a anyway, beautiful, a beautiful venomous snake, very deep yes. slaty grey, slaty grey, yellow dorsal stripe. <laughs> <That's> um, <laughs> yeah, single yeah. yellow, single yellow. You can park there for a time. Um, Loading only. <laughs> the uh, anyway, back to this the actual thing we're saying. So that snake, it's on the floor. It's bitten a lizard. The lizard can only really run around the floor. The snake can follow it with relative ease. However, if you're a snake in a tree, you're venomous. You bite a lizard. You let go of the lizard, and the lizard disappears. That lizard could have gone up. It could have gone right. It could have gone left. It could have gone down. It's a much more complicated, as you say, three-dimensional environment in which the lizard can make good its escape. So. As you're describing, you might think, yeah, that snake's going to need some serious amount of venom to make sure that anything it bites, it can keep hold of. But actually, the opposite was true, and arboreal snakes tend to use less venom than their terrestrial counterparts. And the theory behind that is that, and there is quite good evidence, a body of evidence from a few papers to um, support this, is that there's actually a lot more prey available in 3D environments, and the Um, speed at which encounters happen is much more frequent so although there's a lot more chance of escape the encounters are so much more frequent the snakes don't really have to worry too much there's plenty of lizards in that tree essentially and so Mm. they're only using a little bit of venom because they don't want to risk there's you know it's not an all or nothing situation with the terrestrial snake they will you know splash out loads of venom when they actually finally encounter an animal because they really need the animal to go down whereas an arboreal snake there's not so much risk to be taken if they know if they don't catch that one there'll be another one coming and the theory is that they maybe use a little bit less venom as a result of that the other thing is there's some behavioral modifications that um arboreal snakes tend to do which is different to uh terrestrial snakes um arboreal snakes which is different to terrestrial snakes and one of those is that when a terrestrial species bites, it often lets go and then follows a the scent trail. Well, as we said already, that would be incredibly difficult in a complicated arboreal three-dimensional environment. So yeah. what many of these arboreal snakes are doing is actually biting and then holding on and then waiting yeah. for the prey to be subdued. And um, I mean, that's something so we've seen just, firsthand. You can sit tight and, and wait for the venom to have its impact. It doesn't necessarily need to be a big yield if it just takes a little bit more time because you're not planning on letting it go anywhere. Exactly. And um, yeah. we've seen that in the green pit vipers, you know, the uh, white lip pit vipers and the big eye pit vipers in Thailand. They they bite onto something and then, yeah, they just, just hold on to it. And the lizards on, can yeah. struggle for ages and they just, yeah, they just hang on and eventually they're incapacitated by the venom. Mm. One I also interest- wonder... Go on. Well, sorry, just just as an extra aside, I wonder if there's also additional constraints for being arboreal, and whether that sort of added uh, sort of flexibility. I mean, we talked in previous episodes about how their body body size and dimensions change for arboreal snakes, and I wonder if there's something interacting there between venom glands and certain body configurations that make it more costly to have larger venom glands mm, yeah it could well be i don't know it's just just something that i was thinking of of coral snakes and how crazy their venom glands are you sort of imagine a coral snake climbing through a tree and it would get all bent up all the time having these glands all over the place yeah Mm. That's how, I mean, that's just how I'm thinking about it in my head. But it, I mean, it could be nonsensical because well, yeah, I'm no, sure venom glands be... are perfectly flexible. But yeah, are no, you I swapping wouldn't... out space for muscle for glands? Yeah, I think it would probably more likely not be due to the like physical proportions or constraints of the venom glands themselves, but maybe like 
a cost, cost thing. of upkeep. Yeah. yeah, you can only have incredibly strong intercostal muscles, you know, bending you all around a tree. You know, you put a coral snake in a tree, it just flops out. It's rubbish. Whereas, obviously, <laughs> an arboreal pit viper, they grip on like nothing else. Maybe they're yeah. uh, maybe building those blocks to make it arboreal is slightly slightly more costly. And then, yeah, they can't have as much venom yield. It's not impossible. Yeah, it's not a bad shout. It'd be interesting to see if someone tried that out, tried to find out. But one one yeah. other thing on this arboreality and the behaviours of snakes. I mentioned the holding thing, which we've seen in the um, uh, Cryptelotrops pit vipers. But the there is some there are some exceptions to that rule. Uh, green mambas they are arboreal snakes, venomous snakes. But when they catch their prey, they bite it and then they let go. I think they just enjoy the thrill of the chase afterwards. They like a challenge. <laughs> they are speedy, aren't they? They're incredibly fast. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Yeah, I've only seen videos of how fast they can be, but yeah, they are speed demons. So maybe they just let go and then they zip after them. It's just like some kind of sick game to them. <laughs> maybe. Not that not that any snake innocently pursuing its prey is playing a sick game. This is nature, you know. They don't yeah. They're not malicious animals, they just have to eat. They just have to eat. Yeah. Just oh the like one everybody. Yeah, exactly. The one other thing which they did a little bit of looking into was the um Ufeji. The egg-eating snakes. and Oh, um, yes, they did, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a cool aside as well. And they, they had this theory that um, egg-eating snakes, by nature of their prey, don't really need to subdue it. I mean, I don't know if you've ever taken out an egg, but it's it's pretty straightforward operation. Just kind yeah, of I've never had a, have a sort of egg interaction backfire in its favour. <laughs> I've never ah. succumbed to their defensive mechanisms. <laughs> you know, and you just, you see, mate, you're looking a bit, you're looking a bit, Oh, was it another? Yeah. Uh, second place to an egg. <laughs> <laughs> Not again. Yeah. Uh, no. I mean, yeah, I'm probably going to be at Euphagus at lunchtime. And I, yeah, I don't anticipate any complications. No, but that might be the part of the long play. Uh, Just biding so. their time. Yeah. I mean, there is actually a whole wealth of research about egg defences, um, particularly bird eggs and the com- the complexities of their camouflage. But it's very much um, Def- kind it's, of... it is defensive. It's not um, uh, it's not like a deterrent. No, no egg they're just, deterrent. They're just hidden. So yeah, as a result, snakes which have venomous snakes oh, which know... have become specialised on eating eggs uh, generally have far less potent venom than those that don't. There's some sea snakes that specialise on fish eggs. Their venoms become Laughable, it's rubbish, but that's just, just eggs are harmless. An extra aside about um, eggs that would actually mess you up: uh, don't eat toad eggs. Oh, toxic. Oh, bufen, bufenilidoid. What is it? Bufenilidoid. Yeah, I'll Bu- just bufotoxins. That'll do. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um. What is it? Bufo. I can't even. I can't even. I need that word written down. Um, well, I never, I never <clears throat> say the one that's in be- in between because I always say bufotoxin more generally, or you say cardiac glycosides. Ah, uh, yeah. There is one that combines bufo with cardiac glycosides, but Love I'm you talk not entirely you sure of its purpose. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's the eggs and the arboreal bits and bobs. So let's go and talk a little bit about what they found out with regards to the prey and how the prey of snakes has an influence on their venom composition and very not composition but venom variation and uh, the, the variation of its potency yeah exactly yeah, yeah. um so again it's kind of like it's hard to 
discuss this paper without kind of just pinging off a load of um, hypotheses, but it does contextualise what they were anticipating well, they might find out. Before you say the hypotheses, should we just say how they sort of translated these LD50 values that yes. they got from mice and stuff into values? In Well, because let's say you're working with... Um, Let's say you're working with eastern indigo snakes. No, they're not really... Oh. No, that's not a good example. Yeah, don't use indigo snakes. That would be a massive spoiler alert. Um, let's say you're working with uh, Raftophis tigrinus. Ooh. Yeah? Spicy. Yeah. They, the females especially, specialise on eating toads. They love eating those toads. But, so you'd expect their venom to have... Or maybe you'd expect their venom to have a different effect on a toad than it would a mouse or something like that. So you can't just use the LD50 value that you would get from having a mouse injected with Raftophis venom. You need some way of translating that into what that would be for a toad. Yes. And yeah, the way yeah. they did this was comparing whatever the species the LD50 uh, value was calculated for and then calculated the, what do they call it, phylogenetic distance? Basically, yeah. evolutionarily, how evolutionarily, how evolutionarily similar the LD50 uh, species was to the actual documented prey of that snake species. So they s corrected the LD50 values in relation to how far they were from uh, actual prey species. Yeah, so they looked at the biological relevance and it was either high yeah. or low. So if, you know, if you've got an animal which specializes in eating crickets and the LD50 is from a test on mice, which is quite likely because as we talked about earlier, it's all coming from the uh, medical profession. That's like, I don't know, 350 million years of evolutionary divergence. It's not a relevant measure at all. Whereas if no. it's a, if it's a, you know, a rattlesnake which specializes in, um, desert mice and you've tested it on a house mouse there's quite a reasonable chance that you've got it fairly close to correct in terms of the potency right, right. so hypotheses what do we got we got one which is termed the overkill hypothesis right this is my favorite the overkill hypothesis the venom is so potent it'll mess up any animal it bites so you'd expect to see no association between, uh, or no sort of massive difference between the LD50 of mice and the LD50 of the actual prey consumed, yeah. because it just doesn't matter. The, everything dies. Just, everything dies. The venom is the Death Star. Mm. In, my, in miniature. Yes, and in a snake's mouth. Exactly. I love that one. I love that one. I love this idea that like there's a point in the snake's evolution where... Yeah, we've just got venom, which is unbelievably toxic to absolutely everything. Let's all just inherit that, and there won't be any selection pressure on it anymore. Great. Yeah, and there's there's no selection pressure prey side because it, it's just overblown, I guess. It yeah. would be so complicated to gain resistance because even you sort be. of you'd expect multiple steps to gain resistance, and if the first few steps don't confer any benefit at all it's much less likely to get all the way to full-blown resistance. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah? That, 
that does make sense, right? Yeah, that does. You have to have a stepping stone. You can't just you can't just go from zero to a hundred in evolution. Well, maybe not, you can sometimes. Not usually. Yeah, not but, usually. Yeah. And like, for something as complicated as snake venom, you'd expect that not to be the case. No. So that's why the overkill hypothesis does have some weight behind it and could, well, yeah. could be true. And you can see where the overkill hypothesis comes from because some snake venoms will just wreck shop in whatever you put them in. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, opposite, many snake, venomous snakes eat people. It still messes people up something fierce. Yeah, exactly. And it messes up in so many different ways. <laughs> that too, yeah. Yeah, um, unfortunately. Um, yeah, and the other one, the kind of... Um, antithesis to that one is the predator-prey hypothesis, which, um, well, basically results in the prey-specific potency hypothesis, which is that um, predator-prey arms races, as we've kind of alluded to, are going on in nature where one animal is trying to um, kill the other one with venom. The other one's kind of evolving. Well, there's two things going on, really. The predator is evolving a venom which is more potent, and then there's the possibility that the prey is evolving an immunity to the venom as well. But what they were, right. they yeah. kind of they kind of focused on those two things separately. So you've got the prey-specific potency hypothesis, which is predator's venom is going to work better on animals it's meant to work on. And then you've also got the focal prey resistance hypothesis, which is that animals which are being targeted specifically by venoms, well, not necessarily specifically by venoms, but animals who are commonly eaten by venomous snakes eventually evolve a resistance to those venoms. Yeah, so you've got two sides to the same arms race. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, it wouldn't. It would be a pretty awful arms race because it would just be one. Well, well it you'd end really up be a race. You'd end up it? with the overkill hypothesis. Be, yeah, you would. Hmm. No, you could still you could still get the prey specific. Um, hypothesis without the prey sort of driving towards resistance. Oh, yeah. You could have it being more specific to certain prey types out of efficiency and sort of lower costs of making a more specific specialised venom with the prey just remaining the same. Yeah, and yeah, and the prey can, you know, there's other strategies for prey, as we'll talk about in the next paper. Right, Their their only defence isn't just being immune to the venom. They could also you know like a Run ground away. squirrel jump around like a lunatic and confuse the yeah. rattlesnake yeah yeah um but yeah so as you described they got this um measure of uh phylogenetic distance and they tested these three hypotheses using a big comparative analysis and uh investigating which prey venoms are more toxic to and um their findings weren't surprising i would say um the venom is more potent uh, when measured on animals more closely related to the relevant prey. So, therefore, yeah. venoms do actually work on the animals they're meant for, and they found a lot of support for the prey-specific hypothesis. Yeah, what do they have for the... for the Was it Bungaris uh, multisynctus? 0.00031 milligrams per kilogram when, uh, when measured on white-rumped munia, which is a small sparrow-like bird from Southeast Asia. So that's a tiny <laughs> amount of venom. Just a taste. 0.00031. That's ridiculous. If that bird even goes where that snake's been, it's in trouble. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how much the venom yield is for, a, for that species, for many banded crates, but I'm willing to bet it's more than that. Yeah. <laughs> like those... 
Birds must just be, you know, oh, they just dissolve yeah. on contact. Just give <laughs> up instantly. Although they don't, they probably wouldn't. Yeah, they'd. Um, I'm sure the venom of crates is uh It's not a hemotoxin; it's a neurotoxin, isn't it? So they'll. Uh, I I'm pretty sure it will be yeah. for many <laughs> bands, birds. Yeah. Just immediately go into every nerve in their body just stops working. But that also that's quite a nice little case study there because many banded crates are terrestrial, right? I'm pretty sure they are. And if they're going after birds, then you start thinking back to the prey yield relationship we talked about: three D to two D environments. Mm. How frequently are you going to catch a bird on the ground and be close enough to grab it? Well, you're damn well going to make sure that it gets put down quickly because a bird could. You're not going to follow that flight trail, that scent trail, are you? It's going to fly off and die somewhere else in a tree. Yeah. Yeah, many yeah, ba- no. many banded crates got to get the job done quickly, and potentially has lower encounter rates for its prey. Yeah. Maybe it would be interesting. Know. It would actually be interesting to um, test this dynamic in species which um, have very very limited, like freakishly limited prey availability, but are also arboreal. So I'm thinking of like um, Bothrops mm. insularis on that island of Bra- of Brazil where. There's only a very small window. I think I'm right in saying there's only a very small window of uh, bird migration in in the year. Yes, yes, and yes. And I would yes. suspect that they would be the the uh, exception that proves the rule in this arboreality and venom yield. So you would expect them to be higher yield and or higher venom potency to make Maybe. use of that fleeting. Yeah, but then bird I suppose resource. I suppose though for that brief period the birds are probably quite abundant. So maybe. Maybe the same. And would... you brought up before other other pit viper species holding their prey anyway. Mm, that's true. Yeah, they're they're little passerine birds. They probably can just grab them and hold them. Yeah, and the but... chances of uh, actually the viper strike breaking breaking bones is probably quite high in that case as well. Mm. Mm. Rough. So maybe. Yeah. Brutal world. Brutal world. Yeah, you don't want to be a small <clears throat> small passerine bird in. Uh, Places with arboreal venomous snakes. No. <laughs> oh boy. Um, but yeah, I feel like yeah. In this paper, you know, the main findings are venom is targeted, and you know, there's not there is a precedent for this. Um, we know that there's there's numerous papers which suggest well, which which go to show that venom works better on different animals. So there was a Barlow yeah. paper in 2009 Barlow et al and they looked at sore scaled vipers and what they found was that because there's some sore scaled vipers that eat lots of arthropods and there's some that don't and what they found that there's a frequent feeding arthropod which is Echis carinatus the Echis carinatus group and the Echis pyramidum group and they are significantly more toxic to scorpions than venoms from snakes which only occasionally feed on scorpions and that's the Echis ocellatus group and the echis ocellatus group which only occasionally feed on arthropods are also significantly more toxic to arthropods than the venoms from snakes which don't really feed on them which are the echis coloratus group so you have this continuum where the more scorpions you eat the more deadly the venom is to scorpions and Mm. um they also did tests to check the venom isn't simply more potent to everything and um they did that by testing to see how deadly the venoms which worked well on scorpions were to mice and sure enough uh, they weren't as potent on mice so they're actually potent on scorpions instead of being potent on mice um mm, what, yeah exactly but what was brutal yeah. about that paper is that even 
at like quite a high dose, it still took a scorpion half an hour to die when given the venom from the snakes, which were really good at taking out scorpions. So yeah, Echis carinatus and Echis pyramidum. Um, Mm. Apparently, arthropods just die slowly. They got things are going on slowly. They've got blue blood. No one understands yeah. what's going on. I mean, so. this is yeah, this is a thing with with reptiles and stuff. They take you know metabolism's different, and therefore how how quickly venom acts is also going to be different. I mean, that's yeah, but that makes sense. And there's also probably with Echis, you can bite a scorpion, inject enough venom to kill it. It doesn't. There's no real pressure for it to die quickly. It's not um, exactly like it's in a complex three-dimensional environment. No, you're not going to see as well. I suppose no, you do get scorpions that run up trees, but for echis and the scorpions they're eating, it's probably less of a concern. No, yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's sort of rocky desert. We're back in the rocky desert. Well, it's a good place for sn- for snake discussions, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we, I think yeah, the main findings of this paper are that yes, snake venom composition, snake venom. <clears throat> the main findings are that snake venoms are targeted towards particular prey species and also snake venom yield doesn't increase on um one-to-one scale with increases in the body size of the snake because their venom's already quite potent and they don't need 100% more to kill an animal that's 100% bigger. Just in relation to that yield thing, I think in the discussion they're suggesting that that sort of suggests that venom the cost of venom production uh is relatively high when you're dealing with prey items with higher mass right there's a there's a trade-off there because if you could just produce loads and loads of venom and just smash it out then fine you would but uh in that case it's sort of better to do something more specific than it is just to pump more venom in yeah yeah yeah, because... I think so. I think there's it, it, it's weighing up that you've got two options to deal with the same problem. And one works regardless of snake size. Venom yield, however, seems to be more costly the bigger you get. And therefore further supports the idea of potency as being the best solution for dealing with specific prey. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um well, I was gonna I was gonna mention the sort of bits that are worth Thinking about uh, little caveats um, is that well, there, there's a there's a few, there's a couple. One they mention is that LD50 and the whole phylogenetic distance thing is, I mean, it's worked. It's shown shown this relationship in this interesting way, so that's a pretty good sign. But you do get these oddball species that may be quite similar to other species that have been tested on, but are just particularly resistant for whatever reason. Maybe it's a uh, ecological overlap with a certain venomous snake um, so there are other aspects going on so it might not be as, as perfect for all species when you're looking at that sort of stuff yeah 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 there's... and the other thing is there's the whole time to kill or time to in- incapacitate is you don't necessarily have to kill your prey to eat it you just have to make sure it isn't moving and not going to bite you back so there might be a sort of relaxation of potency on some of these venoms if it can just incapacitate a prey item but not necessarily kill it and therefore your ld50s on mice might be a little bit different again in that regard Mm. yeah because they might be more or less easy to incapacitate than yeah 
Cause right, because po- if, yeah. you, if, if you've got a, a decent, a, a non-potent venom, but it still incapacitates that particular prey item, even though it's not dead, um, as long as it incapacitates it long enough for you to eat it and, and sort of have it die on its way down. Yeah, and the um, the chemicals and compounds which have that impact on a mouse are going to be different from say a scorpion <laughs> like incapacitating yeah. a scorpion takes god knows what and incapacitating a mouse takes god knows what so they're not going to be the same thing so yeah there's a further kind of room for uh inaccuracy but i suppose that is probably um reasonably well explained by their phylogenetic distance thing i, th- I think i think so yes i think so and i think that's the other so you gave a very good example of a a, a genus specific example with the echis that's what's nice with this study is they have done a huge number of snakes. What was it? It was 500, 538 measures of LD50 representing 102 snake species that span six different families. So there is a good chunk of data behind this paper. And that's what's nice when you're sort of working with more general rules. Is you know There's always going to be exceptions to them. But how consistent it is across multiple different snake lineages that really works. Well, I, I find it quite convincing, the uh, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's not my forte, but I'm pretty convinced. No, same here. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, so I think that's um, that probably ties, ties up that paper. And the second paper we're going to talk about is related to this one because it's kind of going the other way. So we've been looking at... Um, well, we've been talking a bit about prey resistance, but uh, this one is actually predator resistance. So when something eats something venomous, in this case, we're looking at a uh, snake eating another snake and the predatory snake actually becoming immune to the venom of the snake prey, which it's trying to consume. So this paper is Goetz, Piccolomini, Hoffman, Bogan, Holding, Medoncha, and Steen, 2019, serum-based inhibition of pit viper venom by eastern indigo snakes, dry mark on Cooperi, published in Biology Open. And uh, yeah, we're back on the dry mark on Cooperi. Did we decide on dry mark on? I think we did, didn't we? Did I say dry marsh on? Um... I don't know. I would be saying dry, dry mark on. Yeah, we're saying dry mark on. And these are the beasts of the southeast, occurring mainly in Florida, so we're in the <laughs> United States, uh, but also Alabama and Georgia. And we actually discussed their ecology in quite a lot of detail back in episode twenty-eight. But just in case you've forgotten, they're gigantic black snakes that live in open canopy pine savannas. Nice environment, open canopy pine savannas. Sounds really nice nice and chill they grow to very big suggestions of 10 feet or even longer uh they're mostly black but with a red or tan face they get their name the indigo snake from their nice purple sheen when they're in the sun and uh they have big scales on the head so you can tell who they are immediately it's just a big black snake with big scales on the head not dissimilar to a king cobra in terms of the fact that it's unique scalation on the head um that's a telltale sign that's an indigo snake and they'll eat anything but as we discovered in episode 28 they actually love the smell of tasty pit vipers yeah preferentially yes 
Yeah, so they like it more than other animals and other snakes. So they're all about those pit vipers. And in this paper, we're going to be talking about their relationship with Agkistrodon contortrix dicoped. And uh, yeah, one thing we should note, actually, that the paper we covered in twenty episode 28 was not published yet. And um, it has subsequently been published. And so that paper was... Um, Wait, what? Which which one is this that wasn't published? We did we a falter, did we? We did a falter at old preprint, yeah, from BioArchive, um, and it's now subsequently been published. And it was the one which was all about whether or not there was sufficient genetic diversity in indigo snakes to warrant um, this new species delimitation. And yes. um, the long and short of it was that Dromarcon colpo basilius is actually a synonym of uh, Dromarcon cuprii. So they were one species, not two. So all the hullabaloo about whether yes, or not the, the translocation stuff. Yeah, yeah they yeah, were doing yeah, some yeah. introductions. And there was a suspicion that they might be different species in there. Oh, the conservationists have gone and mucked it up. No, they actually didn't muck it up. And uh, the reintroduction efforts near Tallahassee in uh, Florida were actually spot on. So that's good. Okay. That's, yeah. Um, we must yeah, have so, said that was a preprint when we did it, though, surely. Oh, yeah, we we did. Yeah, we did. Um, yes, I thought you were making it sound like we were passing something off that had gone through peer review that hadn't or something. Oh, no, that's not us, man. That's not our style. No, we were very, very clear. Certainly in my okay. notes, it's like the first thing I've written, so I'm sure we said it. Okay, good, good. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this paper is looking at the idea that, as I said earlier, predators may become resistant to the venom of their prey because if every time you try and eat something, you get envenomated and it's really sore, makes you feel a bit poorly... That's no way to live. Or die. Or die. Worst case scenario, yeah. Die. The joke's on you. Imagine that. Um, you wouldn't get that yeah. problem with an egg. Well, you would if it was a toad egg. You would if it was a toad, you would if it was a toad egg. Yeah, um, the last egg you ever enjoyed. <laughs> um, and so, although like venoms are pretty complex cocktails of proteins, but quite often it seems there are only a few majorly damaging ingredients. And if you can evolve some means of being immune to those, you can kind of shrug off the rest. And in this paper, we're talking about resistance to venom, which comes from the blood sera. So the serum of the blood, which is like all the gunk in blood that isn't either clotting agents or red blood cells, it's like the other stuff. And Yeah, that's, that's how I, how I think of it too. The other yeah. stuff, the gunk. <laughs> it is, it's just the gunk, you know. And so they looked at this gunk in the indigo snakes and they wanted to see whether or not it had some way of diminishing the effects of the venom from these um, copperheads. And so there's a precedent for this. Um, the best case example is um, California ground squirrels have a serum-based resistance to the venom of rattlesnakes from the genus Crotalus. They are a big dietary component of these rattlesnakes. And um, yeah, the sera of the ground squirrels actually contains factors that neutralize the digestive and hemostatic effects of pit viper venom. So basically, yeah, they're not being digested and having their blood mucked around by the... Yeah, uh, hemostatic is messing with the blood. Yeah. damaging blood specifically yeah 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 usually down like hemostasis is like the clotting of the blood so if it's affecting your clotting agents yeah it's gonna go bad 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 yeah you're just gonna bleed out in a horrible way yeah you just turn so it's into not soup. nice um so everyone suspected that these snakes were immune to pit viper venom because they keep on eating them these indigo snakes are constantly eating the copperheads and um 
yeah, there's people have seen them get bitten and kind of just shrug it off. But the thing is, because these indigo snakes have got really thick skin, they're massive, and they've got really strong jaws, and they have a habit when they catch a snake of just grabbing it by the head and crushing its face until it's completely and utterly destroyed. Yeah, so not going to bite anything without a face. That's... Yeah, exactly. So they kind of like, oh, it could be that actually they've just got these other kind of this suite of behavioural adaptations which stop them being, or behavioural and physiological adaptations that stop them being bitten. Um, so they thought, let's find out, let's look at the serum and see if it's neutralising the, uh, the effects of the venom. And mm. they did this in two ways. Um Go on, you got something to say before I go on? Yeah, I was going to say just the, the species they were working with because you can't <clears> just <throat> plug it into an eastern indigo and be like, okay, it's having an impact or not. You've got to have you got to have some sort of baseline to compare it to to know what copperhead venom would do in something that's definitely not resistant. Um, and so to achieve this, they grabbed a couple of species to work with. They grabbed checkered garter snakes and they grabbed mice. And when I say mm. grab, they're not actually injecting any venom into any animal. In this case, they're just mixing it with blood and or tissue. So not, that's right. Yeah, that's that's something that's very, very worth saying, is they are not injecting venom into live animals. Yes. No. No, they're not. Um, that would be two Thunderdome. Um, that would be such... A, yeah, that's such a weighted Thunderdome. You'd have no chance. Yeah, like, no. What's the animal fighting against? Something that's it's... already inside it? It's like yeah. if the Thunderdome was just a person walking into a ring and then being railgunned <laughs> for entertainment. Yeah, or we need. What's yeah, the need... what's the what's the film where they they shrink shrink down and go inside the guy? Honey, I shrink uh, the kids. Inner space. It's the spoof, not the not the like original original. Something something journey, marvelous journey, wonderful journey. One of those. Okay, I'm not. It's not ringing a bell, unfortunately. Nah, well, you remember the uh, you remember the uh, the note that nicks the title for the the title of the note about that blind snake that gets eaten by a toad and then comes out the other end. Um, is it a miraculous journey? That's a ticket, maybe it's something like that. But that's the, that's <laughs> the name of the film. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> All right, on. Oh, okay. So well, Marco Shay's obviously seen it. There you go. Your venom's in. Your venom's inside the animal. It's it's just it's just. That's underhanded tactics. It's cheating. Yeah, no, it is. But they, um, so they were looking at two things. So they first, well, basically, they knew they know a little bit about how this pit viper venom works, um, and so they wanted to see whether or not two of the ways in which it works were actually having an effect inside the blood of these three test animals. Uh, the first is serum. The first thing they were looking at was inhibition of hemolytic factors. So. These are toxins which damage red blood cells and disrupt blood coagulation. Um, so they were looking to see whether or not red blood cells were being damaged and blood coagulation was being affected in these blood samples. And then they also investigated the inhibition of snake venom metalloproteinases, aka SVMPs, which damage the <laughs> proteins in the extracellular matrix and hydrolyzed collagen and um in normal person speak, they basically just turn the network which surrounds your cells and keeps your cells together into a juice, which it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to perform a function. Yeah. So you got one, one hitting blood, one hitting cells. Yeah, one hitting blood, one hitting the extracellular matrix, which sounds weird, really cool. Mm. <laughs> that should have been the sequel. 
Yeah. And um, yeah, the results were pretty damn conclusive, I'd say. Uh, first yeah, of all... sort of. I thought they were. So when they yeah, looked... Yeah. yeah. It's a bit confusing. It's a bit confusing. Yeah. But then it's not that confusing. But then... It's not as straight cut as it could be. And I don't think it's as straight cut as they're expecting. <laughs> what have we got? What are just Imagine the most confusing thing out. it could possibly be. It's less confusing. Less confusing than that. <laughs> so, yeah. When they incubated the venom with this serum from Eastern Indigo Snakes, it reduced the activity of these uh, blood-damaging... Uh, elements of the venom by an average of 78%. So it's pretty damn good. Um, as in contrast to that, the uh, the blood damaging activity of the venom was not inhibited when they mixed it with mouse sera or garter snake sera. So basically, the eastern indigo snakes, their blood cells are looking pretty good, even after they've bitten, been bitten by this mm. uh, copperhead. Yeah. Whereas the mice... could easily subdue and consume a mouse and or a garter snake. Exactly, yeah. The other thing that they looked at, the uh, SVMP, these snake venom metalloproteinases, it caused a 66% reduction in SVMP activity when they mixed it with the EIS, not EIS, mixed it with the Eastern Indigo snake blood, but it was also reduced when they mixed it with the garter snake blood. The mouse blood couldn't reduce the effects of these uh, SVMPs, but both the Mm. garter snakes and the uh, eastern indigo snakes could. And the garter snakes were even lower than the indigos. Yeah, they were. The garter snakes were actually better. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So what this what this what this basically means is that the bites of copperheads would be largely ineffectual on the eastern indigo snakes. And um, this is in support of what people have observed. Pit viper bites rarely appear to be fatal to indigo snakes. Uh, although they have been shown to sort of introduce things like swelling and skin necrosis but only localized so it's not yeah so you'd expect sort of small impacts on the venom but like swelling and stuff could just be caused by having a horrible puncture wound in the side of you yeah exactly and there's always going to so... be a bit of variation in the um sort of immunity that snakes as individuals actually have so one eastern indigo snake might yes. have a little bit more uh, and and venom yields yes that's true yeah so there's a lot of variables coming into play but yes the the, the long and short of it is that Eastern indigo snakes do absolutely have an immunity from pit viper venom. And that's cool because they join the ranks of things like king snakes, which are known to eat lots of um, rattlesnakes. And they also have this uh, blood serum mediated immunity to the venom. So it's cool. Um, One thing we should talk about, though, what is the deal with the guard snakes? Why can they reduce the uh, SVMP activity? Why is it that they're extracellular? matrixes aren't being smashed to pieces by this uh pit viper venom well i don't know do you have an answer no because i can i can speculate some nonsense let's have your nonsense mate well gart snakes eat toxic stuff don't they frogs and toads and things like that and a lot of those toxins act on extracellular areas so maybe it's just sort of luck that certain proteins are, that deal with the disruption of those extracellular areas just happen to bind in similar ways. So they've just got lucky mm-hmm. with with that. I, good I idea. don't know. That's that's my only guess is is where that venom's actually going is yeah. is similar with something else. Um 
Actually, no, they do actually suggest something, don't they? They suggest that maybe that is just an ancestral trait of snakes. Um, and it has a very low upkeep cost, so there's nothing selecting for snakes to get rid of it. So some sort of ancestor of snakes had it develop for whatever reason. And now it's just sort of hanging around because there's nothing pushing snakes to get rid of it. Um, well, if it's still the cell walls operating as it should, maybe it just doesn't doesn't matter. There's no cost. It's like I always say, if the extracellular matrix ain't broke, don't evolve it. Yeah. Don't evolve it. Yeah, don't evolve it. Yeah. And you know, you it might even confer some surprising advantages if you ever get bitten by a pit viper, which is probably quite unlikely if you're a garter snake, unless you've really pissed it off. <laughs> It it feels quite unlikely, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I yeah. think it's fair to say it's probably not an adaptive thing. And I'm struggling to think of any other snakes which would prey on a garter snake that are venomous. Don't, don't, I can't think of that happening. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I would doubt it's a massive... Again, it, it's not only, not only does it have to happen, it has to happen sufficiently often to be a selective pressure to yeah. warrant a change that's specific to a venom like it's mm. i i think they're pretty pretty spot on with it. it's likely to be an ancestral state thing i yeah. think my chat about frog and whatever toxins is a bit like hey i don't know maybe but i liked I, it ancestral state seems <laughs> much more likely <laughs> but it could be the frog juices you never know the toad juices or both. It could be an ancestral snake that had to deal with a particularly toxic toad in a or toxic frog in a very specific way, and it is just, you know, they've hang on to it because it's not a big deal. Hmm. But uh, the take-home message, indigo snakes just got even cooler, and they were already cool, and now they're even cooler. They can, not only can they just get ginormous and just tear up the open canopy pine savannah, and they're immune to the venom of pit vipers so yeah a pretty incredible species really and i think uh, yeah i think that's a nice note to end on in terms of the snake venom stuff for this episode i think so i think it i think i it really just goes to demonstrate how awesome venoms are with regards to how they interact with other species it's not just something toxic that kills all living life it is something that has selective pressure on it, that has driven it to be specific and carefully designed. Mm, Although carefully designed is not the correct term, sometimes venoms are carefully built. Or venoms are carefully built. Mm, Yeah. Uh, Right. Species species by by week. week. Come at me. All right. What are they doing? Um, You you introduce it. Yeah, so, so we're talking about venom. We're talking about snakes that can handle venom. We're talking about vipers. What are the coolest talk snakes? About another type of viper. The coolest type of snake. The coolest snakes are pit vipers, right? Oh, I thought they were Escalapians. Oh. Hey, they're cool, but they're not as cool as pit vipers. I'm going to freely admit <laughs> that. Um. Okay. But we have, a, we have a new species of pit viper to chat about. New species of pit viper from West Kamang District, Arunachal Pradesh, India. 
published in the Russian Journal of Herpetology this year, written by Captain Deepak Pandit Bat and Afreya. And apologies for any mispronunciations of locations and people's names, as usual. Yeah, we do our best, but we're lowly mortals. Uh, so yeah, Northeast India has the potential to hold many undescribed species of snakes, as it turns out, because it hasn't had the intensity of surveying that other parts of South and Southeast Asia have had. So, and um, even places that have had quite a lot of work done, i.e. Western Ghats and stuff, they're still pulling out new species. It feels daily, but it's probably monthly. Yeah, we still easily don't run out of species for the species of the bi-week, that's for damn sure. No, we only it's only tricky when we look for something very, very specific. Well, in fairness, this took us a while to find, didn't it? Because we really wanted a venomous uh, yes. snake. And also this paper, accessing it was very tricky as well, so it was a bit of a mission. But uh, we have conquered it, so yeah, here we are, describing a brand new species of Tremerosaurus, which now has over 50 species in the genus. Um Although it is a contentious group and it might get split yeah. further. We don't want to delve too much into that, I don't think. But... No, I, I, I did a wee bit just because I wanted to offer the alternative genus this species could be in. Oh, cool. Um, and, okay, it's, it, I mean, obviously I didn't rerun some analysis using all available data and to work it out that way. So, you know, this was me having a look at some trees, having a look at a bunch of other trees and eyeballing it. Um but really, I was I was leaning on the Malhot and Forp two thousand four paper. Um, is that the I description of Cryptelotrops as a new genre? Yes, that's the description of four or five new genera. I think it is. Um, right. But oh uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that one's in there. Yeah, go on. But as far as I can tell, I mean the the one that it's closest to in the paper that we're looking at. Is Tremerosaurus tibetanus. 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 And in the other paper, that belongs to Himalayophis. Himalayophis. Yes. Ah. So maybe it's in there, in that genus, but alter- basically there's a little bit of. That area of the tree in other papers seems to be one of the sort of shakier, less supported areas. So maybe it's in um, Popia. Do you say is it Popia? Is it not po- Popiorum? No, Popiorum is the, the the species. I don't know, Popeia? Maybe I can't remember. <clears throat> but, yeah, Popeia could also be another way. Yeah, I could see it being pronounced there that way too. P O P E I A. So it's either Papaya or Himalayophis, if it's not Tremerosaurus, as they suggest in this paper. Because Tremerosaurus is the kind of umbrella. Yes, by my ignorant just looking at trees with my eyes, that's what I would sort of guess. Cool. Oh, no, that's cool. That's interesting to know. Nice one. Because, yeah, they don't yeah. obviously make any mention of it because they're using their taxonomy here. Um, yeah, I just wanted to supply both options because, I mean, it doesn't some people like one way some people like the other way i'm not getting into saying which one is right but i did want to show both yeah and we don't have to pick a favorite we can no. just say what the options are and remain yeah. impartial although me personally i think himalayophis sounds pretty cool <laughs> um <laughs> and also that would be two uh location two locations based. yeah yeah. Ooh, yeah specification um so anyway the story behind this paper 
The authors and their team were conducting biodiversity surveys in West Kameng, Arunachal Pradesh, and they found a brown pit viper. Now, what any herpetologist thinks when they find a brown pit viper in West Kamang, Arunachal Pradesh, is, oh, it must be either Avophis monticola or Protobothrops mucrosquamatus. But no! <laughs> of course. This is a new species, and that's why it's in this segment. And this new species is Tremerosaurus arunachalensis. And, uh, yeah, a species epithet which is derived from the name of the place, Arunachal Pradesh, which is awesome. And um, I think it's fair to say it's a really, really beautiful creature that they're describing here. Oh, boy. Yeah, I. it's like a, like a lava viper. Yeah. Yeah, I do suspect they've banged up the saturation on that... F- that f- Slide A. <laughs> maybe, maybe a touch. Yeah, but anyway, it's definitely a really cool looking snake with like a sort of a rusty red, browny dorsal coloration, some sort of subtle counter shading. Well, not counter shading. Well, yeah, it's red underneath with a little like bit of white, but the um, the top it just looks like leaf litter, doesn't it? It's like perfect camouflage. It's mm. actually not dissimilar to a kind of slightly toned down copperhead style coloration. Yes, yes. Copperhead slash Malayan pit. Oh, they look so much together, like... brown yeah. them a little bit, and you and you and you're getting there. Yeah, they look so much like Malayan pit vipers, like that funny little nose, and um, it sounds like they're chubby, defensive. Chubby back end that turns into a very slim tail is a bit odd. I hadn't noticed that the first time. They've got a very slim tail that like is... really tapers. That's, I suspect. Hmm, I wonder. Yeah, well, I suppose they are terrestrial, aren't they? Presumably. Yeah. Um, I wonder if that's a male or a female, because perhaps a male would have a slightly thicker, longer tail. Um, I will quickly have a look because it should definitely. They only. Say. Oh no! They only no, found one. No, it has to be a male. Yeah, they only found yeah. one, and they had a hemipene, so that is the male. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well, the hemipene's unforked, so maybe that's why they don't need a big tail. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I don't know. That's just nonsense. But um, yeah. Very handsome creature, and uh, yeah, the pointy nose, and it sounds like when they disturbed it, it flattened itself out and poked its head up in the air, which is a posture you see lots of um, Malayan pit vipers in in pictures, which are presumably being harassed. Um, <laughs> so perhaps that's a yep. similarity in their defensive mechanism. Yeah. But yeah, where was it found? It was found on a... On the ground. On the ground, in on a steep litter. slope, in leaf litter, yeah, literally like... If you were to glance at this snake, you'd say that was its habitat. And as it turns out, at least for this one, which is the only one that's been found, it was. And um, this one time it was found too. Yeah. They literally described the species from one individual, didn't they? So, yeah. Yeah. You know, you can only draw so many conclusions. It could be that actually they're arboreal, but this one had fallen out of the tree and it was deeply ashamed. And that's why it was poking its head in the air, trying to regain some semblance of its pride. (laughs) Maybe. But um, I doubt it. No, I doubt it too. But yeah, you know, really cool new species. And uh, yeah, have a Google. Tremerosaurus arunachalensis. Arunachalensis. Yeah, there's not really much else to, to say about it. It's a bit of, bit of DNA, bit of morphometrics. It's found during the day, but that doesn't really sell that, say that much. No. Just a really, really good looking viper. Yeah, yeah, a new species. 
So yeah, stylish pinstripe. That's the species of the bye week. Uh, I've got a bit of uh, any other business this week or this bye week. Yep. Go for um, it. So in the, I think it was in the last episode or maybe I can't. Was remember. this us bad mouthing water snakes? Yeah, mate. <laughs> so you said, and I quote. <laughs> oh, you got a! Oh, that's brilliant. Water snakes are mini anacondas without any of the charm. Oh yeah, that's yeah. I threw them under the bus there, didn't you I? Did, mate. You did. <laughs> but of the I, charm. Yeah. Take that, water snakes. We obviously do have a deep love for water snakes in reality, but um, yeah, Eric Loss messaged us on Twitter, and uh, he thought we were quite unfair. And of course, Eric, you're right. And um, he sent us a yeah. video of no, him he's, he's, with yeah. a handsome water snake and also some really nice pictures showing that um some water snakes are actually very colorful um so yeah we stand corrected on the whole uh the whole water snakes being mini anacondas thing perhaps ben do you want to take this opportunity to issue a public apology uh yeah i'd like to uh (laughs) say sorry for for really downplaying the beauty of water snakes um they play a very large role in aquatic ecosystems they're good looking snakes with their funny little eyes um, I'm I'm sorry. Uh, they're as good as anacondas. <laughs> in some circumstances, better. Excellent, mate. Excellent. Yeah. Which species was it? It was northern water snake. And uh, yeah, the photos that, well, the photo that um, Eric sent. It's really cool. It almost looks like a corn snake. The coloration. So, yeah, I'm glad we put that one to bed. Well done. Sometimes you've got to be, <laughs> you know, apologise. Good thing to do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to, be, to be fair, I think it, I think it's okay to say stuff like that because I know if I was faced with a water snake, I'd never call it ugly. <laughs> That's where in my mind it's 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 so absurd, it's funny. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> out of context, it's just me bad mouthing snakes. I can understand. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, we had another message from Scott Iper, and he said there is a Texas in Australia. We had a conversation about that in the last episode. We, I think we said there must be a Texas in Australia. There is. Yep. It's in southeast Queensland, and it has fantastic reptiles. And he actually sent a photo of Sudecus guttatus, a.k.a. the spotted black snake, which, um, yeah, case confirmed, really handsome creature. So uh, not only is there a Texas, but it's also home to some badass reptiles. So thanks, Scott. Sweet. Yeah, and um, I think that's just about all I've got. Yeah, yeah, I don't have anything crazy. I, I could badmouth a different species and, and cause more outrage, but um, <laughs> I, I actually really don't want to do that because <laughs> I, think you've done I enough, do mate. respect water snakes. Yeah. You've had your fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, right on. So, yeah, I think that all remains to be said is thanks for listening. Um, I enjoyed that episode. That first paper, I found it a bit of a slog to get through because it's not my forte, but um, it's always interesting to read about something a little bit different and... Uh, I think once you contextualize venom in an ecological sense, that helps people like us get involved with it because principally we're ecologists and um, sometimes that stuff can be really hard going. And when it's only pertaining to humans and the medical side of things, it's incredibly important. It's um, arguably more important, Um, but it doesn't necessarily capture the imaginations of people like us who just want to know what snakes are doing and why and, you know, what happens when they bite animals fascinating so um yeah this was yeah i feel like this was an important piece of the uh the puzzle for me it was a nice yeah nice crossover right yeah exactly yeah yeah and then obviously the fact that indigo snakes are immune to uh cobhead venom it's just wicked well done well done evolution you've done it again (laughs) good work carry (laughs) on love that 
yeah, so I think if you want to get into touch with us, you can herphighlights at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Facebook, just search for us. And Twitter, we're at herphighlights. Um, if you wanted to leave us a review on your podcast app, that'd be great. Other podcasts say that. I'm not going to say it. Um, yeah, and uh, thanks for listening. Follow, following the crowd. Yeah, well, make, I don't know. You've got to make your own path. Yeah, you have. Don't leave us a review. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>